All right. Well, C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, the first qualification for judging uh, any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do and how it is meant to be used. And so what we want to do before we go into the uh, actual story and the gospel of Mark, I think it's good for us to know a little bit about the background, the context, and the framework in which um, Mark is about. And so first off, I want to just let you guys know, and I don't assume that we've all read the gospel of Mark or we're experts in the gospel of Mark. So the first thing we'll we'll begin with is who the author is. The author of the gospel of Mark, obviously his name is in in his own book, but it's He's also known as, as John Mark. And so the reason why I say that is because when you're reading uh, other passages in Scripture like the book of Acts or there's a passage in Colossians that I'm going to refer to in just a moment here, you're actually going to see Mark mentioned. And it's going to say uh, uh, Mark also or otherly known as uh, John. And so Mark, a little bit about him. He was actually one who accompanied Paul and Barnabas uh, on their first missionary journey. Um, We're going to see this in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 25, and I think there's a verse for you guys on the screen. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, uh, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so this is the same Mark that we're dealing with in the gospel of Mark. Also in Acts 12, 12, we see that... um, Mark's uh, mother hosted early church gatherings where he probably got to know, know Peter. Uh, Acts 12, 12 says this, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, uh, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Mark is not just writing the gospels here, but he actually was a participant. He, he was active in, in the, the work and the ministry of Jesus himself. In Colossians 4.10, uh, it actually says that, that John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. It says, Aristarchus, uh, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, uh, if he comes to you, welcome him. And so the writer here is uh, Mark or 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 John Mark, and um, this is written about about 30 years um, post uh, the life of Jesus, uh, around 60 AD, and, and, and the purpose of this, unlike Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, that's kind of written more towards a Jewish audience, uh, uh, unlike uh, Luke, that, that's written to a specific individual, Theophilus, Mark's Gospel is written from Rome to the uh, Gentile and Jewish believers in Rome, which is kind of a, a urban and uh, anti-Christian context, and, and so I think one of the uh, things about the gospel of Mark is that the context itself is probably not far from the context that we live in here in Chicago. Uh, I, I think, it, I think you, you and I as believers, of followers of Christ, uh, we can say that at times it's not that easy to follow Christ and be uh, um, a follower, a disciple of Christ in the city of Chicago where a lot of times you can feel like the minority right here. Uh, in our context. And so uh, the gospel of Mark, I think what, what makes this gospel unique is that from the get-go, chapter one, you know, unlike the gospel of Matthew that has this whole genealogy and the birth narrative of Jesus, uh, gospel of Mark has a more quick and to-the-point uh, uh, style. He doesn't waste words, uh, and he, he kind of skips out the genealogy and the birth narrative. And so uh, in the story, the gospel of Mark, there's no Bethlehem, there's no birth story, there's no genealogy. He, he, he He uh, introduces Jesus as one who moves quickly, and he's on the move. It's not that he's in a rush, but the gospel of Mark is intended to show us the the life and the triumph and the victory and the counts and the, the action, the activity of Jesus himself. 
The Gospel of Mark uses the word immediately. That's one of the things that you might notice as we go through the Gospel of Mark. The word immediately comes out uh, many times and quite frequently, 42 times in the Gospel of Mark, more than the other three Gospels combined, okay? And so his Gospel, uh, Mark's Gospel, is very action-oriented and records more miracles than any other Gospel Itself, And here's how he begins in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel. And so the, when we say the word gospel, or when we say talk about good news, um, you know, a, a lot of times we find this, this particular term or word as more of a religious term. We, we don't hear the word gospel much in our workplaces or or, or in politics or things like that, but we find the word in church, and so we say, well, it's just a you know, religious term. But when you, when you begin to understand the context of how the word gospel, of how this word, what we call the good news, of how that was used 2,000 years ago, it takes on a whole different meaning. That word gospel here, the beginning of the gospel, is the word Greek word euangelion, euangelion, and I don't expect you to know that, but what, what I do want us to know is that Galion, when it was used 2,000 years ago, and when Mark was writing this, he's not referring to a religious term. He's actually referring to a, a more of a political term, uh, maybe even more of a, a military term. And, and the reason for that is because this word, Galion, uh, was something that the military, the, the, uh, the army would use to deliver an announcement. The announcement would, become, would come in the form of euangelion, right? And so if your army went out to war and, and uh, you know, in those days there wasn't email or, or, you know, you don't have social media to know instantly what's happening. And so the king would often wait for a messenger, uh, a message to arrive to tell us whether we've been defeated or whether we've been victorious, and if your military went out to war and, and, you, and they were victorious, your army had won the battle, had won the war, they would send a messenger with a galion. They would send a messenger with the gospel, a good news. The gospel would come back to the king to say, our army has won the victory. We have won. And... Um, what would happen is during kind of this, uh, this battle or, or this war, if there was, uh, 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 the battle was still going on and, and, and the king would um, not know what's going on and, 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 and the victory has not been won, the king would actually sometimes send advisors to tell the army of what they ought to do. There was this difference between messengers and advisors. What advisors would do, the advisor would be sent by the king to tell the army what to do because the, the victory has not been won. But if the victory has been won, instead of an advisor, you would have a messenger. And the messenger would, would come back with, with this good news saying the victory has been won. What Mark is announcing then is he's saying is that this is the beginning of the victory. This is the beginning of, uh, of our triumph. He, and he's talking about this, this victory that's connected, and it's because of uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he's saying this. He's saying that the gospel is good news, not good advice. And I think even in verse 1, there's a lot that we can receive from it. There's a lot that we can actually take from verse 1 because what it's telling us that at the core of our faith, and if you're new to church, 
And if you're maybe just trying to discover or, or explore, learn more about the Christian faith, I think in verse 1, what you're going to see is that Christianity ultimately is not a, a religion of how you ought to live your life. It's not a religion. It's not a, a, about, you know, giving you advice on how to be moral or how to reach God or how to please God. At the core of Christianity, at the core of what we believe, is that the gospel is not good advice, but it's actually good news. What it's saying is that the gospel is not to ultimately tell us what to do, but it's to tell us what God has already done in Christ, which then demands a response of what we ought to do in return. It begins with what God has already done. It, it begins with this triumph, a victory. And one of the reasons for for this, that the Mark writes this is because he's writing to this audience 2,000 years ago in the uh, urban, you know, kind of anti-Christian context, uh, the Christians in Rome that are facing a lot of discouragement, a lot of persecution. They, uh, they're, they're having to endure every single day and to really uh, battle in their faith because it wasn't easy to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus in that day. And, and my, my guess is that for us, uh, it, it's not always easy for us as well. And so Mark's gospel is, is meant to bring hope. It's meant to, to be an encouragement. It's meant to retell the story of triumph that regardless of circumstances, that we have a Christ that, is, that stands above every circumstance. And Mark is trying to get us to, to see again and again that we have, we have a hope, we have an eternal hope because of Christ, our Savior. I saying this is the beginning of our victory. This is the beginning of our good news. And so he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was younger, uh, when people would say Jesus Christ, I thought Jesus was first name and Christ was what? Last name, right? Some of you guys thought that right now, right? Jesus Christ. And so, you know, when, when, if Jesus were to fill out an application or a form, you know, when it says first name, he might write Jesus. But on the last name, he wouldn't write Christ because Christ was not his last name. Christ would be more like on the application or the form. It would be more like your title or, or who you are, your, your identity, right? Christ was not to, to say that this is uh, his, his family name. Christ was a way of Mark announcing who Jesus is. It was, it was a way of saying this Jesus is not your ordinary Jesus. This Jesus is the Christ. And the Christ, what that, what that word means is it actually is translated as Messiah or the anointed one. And so Mark then jumps into, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the sent one. He is the son of God. You see how Mark is announcing this victory that we serve a God who stands above every circumstance and every context and every culture. He says, we have this Christ he is the Messiah, anointed one. He is the son of God. And, he's, and then he brings forth this, uh, this, this uh, verse from Isaiah. And he's quoting prophecies in Isaiah that, that actually say, here is the one that's been prophesied about. He is now here. He's now the one that's been with us. And he talks about this quote from uh, Isaiah who's prophesying that a messenger would come. He's talking about John the Baptist. And then he says, this messenger will prepare the way right? And he's the one, uh, he's the voice crying out in the wilderness, and he says he will prepare the way of the Lord. And Isaiah, if you're in Isaiah and you're, you're hearing the, uh, the, the word or the name Lord, that's, that's, that's Yahweh, that's God, creator, that's the beginning and the end God. And he's referring to then Jesus as that Lord. 
So he's saying Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. He's saying Jesus is Lord. One of the things that we ought to think about when we're reading through the gospel of Mark, and I think every gospel, and I think through all scriptures, is to ask this question. And it's, it's what does it look like when Jesus is Lord? What does it look like when Jesus is Christ? What does it look like when Jesus is the Son of God? When, when that, because he is, but what does it look like? If you are, uh, are maybe exploring the faith and you're thinking about this, this person of Jesus and, and what is he about, I want, I want you to think about as we go through Mark, think about what does it look like then when Jesus is Lord? And you're going to see when Jesus is Lord, there is renewal of all things. Broken things are made whole. And every sickness and every disease in the world, God is is ultimately going to restore. And when Jesus is Lord, there is salvation. When Jesus is Lord, there's good news. When Jesus is Lord, there's hope. Amen? And so he's saying this Jesus is Lord. And then he goes on, and then he talks about this baptism. You guys ever like, want, like read the Bible and ever want to just skip some parts? This is that part. Now, what is this like John the Baptist dude all about? Why is he wearing like camel's hair and like what's that all about? Why is he trying to be all different, you know? And, and you, you, you got to ask yourself, but I think this is important. John the Baptist was, uh, um, had quite a following. He was baptizing people in the, in the Jordan River. And, and, and it makes a, <clears throat> Mark makes a note here that um, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, if you think about religious people in John's day, in the days of Jesus, you would not think uh, someone like John the Baptist, at least not visually. You would think about Pharisees and Sadducees. You would think about people who wanted to appear so clean on the outside that they wore robes and they always washed their hands and they always, they're always, in a sense, cleansing themselves. Does that make sense? They're always trying to purify themselves before God. They're always trying to appear to be clean on the outside before God. Yet John the Baptist did not appear very clean. He wore clothes that did not appear very clean. Like, like he, he wore clothes that you would say, man, you need, a new pair of, you need a new set of clothes. And he would say, this is new. You know, it just, it just was, you know, maybe grungy, uh, didn't, didn't have the appearance of any religious leader, Right? You would wonder, like, like, he's baptizing people? And I think this is important because John's clothes, I think it's just connected and tied to his whole life and his whole message that the kingdom of God was one in which what appeared on the outside did not determine whether one was clean or unclean, but rather the inward condition of one's heart. I love that. I love that John represented one, that it, what mattered to God was not how clean you appear on the outside. It was not about how, how, how altogether you had it on the outside. It was not about how clean you wash your hands as before you go into the temple. But it was symbolizing this need for an inward cleansing, an inward purification that the gospel must hit you from inside out. And it talks about John the Baptist, and it says that uh, all, in verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem 
we're going out to him and we're being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And so there, what we see in, in chapter one in this, this kind of first half is we actually see uh, two kinds of baptisms. Here's one is the baptism of John the Baptist. Another one is the baptism of Jesus. And John the Baptist actually refers to the baptism of Jesus. And he says, I baptize you with what? Water. But there is one who is mightier and greater than me, and he's going to baptize you not just with water, but he's going to baptize you with Holy Spirit. What John's saying is like, I can't do that. But there is one who can. And he's going to refer to that. But here's what we need to know about John the Baptist and his baptism. When John the Baptist baptizes with water in the Jordan River, it was a baptism that was symbolic of your need for forgiveness. It was for those who recognized and acknowledged that I'm a sinner in need of cleansing. I'm a sinner. I've done wrong before the, uh, before the presence of God, and I'm in need of, of, of um, cleansing. And so this was symbolic of saying, I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness. Not that John the Baptist had the power to forgive or the, or the power to, to bring them back to life or the power to uh, bring this gospel, uh, to be the gospel himself, but, but he represented one that would actually prepare the way that, that when people would come to him, he would then bring the spotlight, not on himself, but towards this one whom they call Jesus, right? So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That's important. A baptism of repentance, right, symbolized by the, the water and, and washing away of the sins in the water. And I think this, there is some significant um, historical uh, meaning uh, about the Jordan River because the, the Jordan, or in the Hebrew, Yardan, Yardan River, it actually means a descender. The Jordan River was known as the, the, the descending river, and they, they, knew, they would say that because the, the, the water that was in the Jordan River would actually flow south all the way down into the deep sea, which was about 1,300, um, I want to make sure I get it, 1,300 feet below sea level. They, they considered it to be the lowest part of the earth. And so uh, I think there's some significance to that in which when people would come to the Jordan River to, uh, to have this water baptism, it kind of symbolized that your sins would be washed away and it would go to a place called the Dead Sea where nothing can live. There was no life. And so that's what it was symbolizing. And so many people from, from Judea, Jerusalem, and, uh, and so now, now this, this is not just Gentiles, but the, these are Jews that are coming to be baptized by John. And I think that's what makes this baptism of John the Baptist so important because the only kind of baptism um, the Jews knew kind of before the time of John the Baptist was the kind in which Gentile converts to Judaism would, would be baptized. And so if you're a Gentile and you'd be converted to Judaism, then you would be baptized. But for those who were born a Jew, born, um, you know, in, in that, uh, they actually did not consider themselves uh, necessary to be baptized because here's what they thought of themselves. They thought we are already born into the family of God. And so if you're a Gentile, you must be baptized. But if you're a Jew, they believe that we are already born into the family of God. And here's why this is important, guys. Because John the Baptist, in preparing the way of Jesus, what he's saying is, nope. He's saying, no one, no one, 
He's saying no one is born into the family of God on their own. It is only through the one who comes after me, pointing to Jesus, that they can actually be born or reborn into the family of God. John John the Baptist was significant because he prepared the way for Jesus. And he invited not just Gentiles, but Jews to come and receive forgiveness from Jesus, to receive a baptism from Jesus. And he he invited all people to say, and his message was this. His message was essentially, all have sinned. All have sinned. And all have been separated from the presence of God. Doesn't matter how you were born. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter, matter your family background. Doesn't matter what last name you carry. All have sinned. And what he's saying is that both Jews and Gentiles both need to come to this person named Jesus. And Mark calls him the anointed one. Calls him the Lord. The Savior. And so John's baptism was radical in that it actually called the Jew to be baptized the same way a non-Jew would be. What, it's, what this is signifying is that in the gospel, God is doing a new thing. God is doing a new work. God is doing a new creation. You guys see that? There's one scholar that said to tell Jewish people that they had to be baptized or repent the same way non-Jews did would have been offensive because it challenged the prevalent Jewish belief about salvation. Most Jewish people thought that if they were born into a Jewish family and did not reject God's law, that they would be saved. But John told them instead that they had to come to God the same way that non-Jews did. The point of John's baptism is that everyone has to come to God on the same terms. So what Mark is doing is this. He's pointing everyone to Jesus. He's saying Jesus bears the good news. Jesus will be the one that can save. And so then after the baptism of, the, the baptism of John or John's baptism, Mark goes on to talk about uh, Jesus' baptism. And here's what, here's what John says. He says, verse 7, he says, after he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, And John wasn't just kind of this no-name guy. John had a great following in Judea and Jerusalem. And so he's he's recognizing that, man, it's it's not about me, though. He's he's never been one to to try to steal the spotlight. He's putting the spotlight on Jesus. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, symbolizing forgiveness of sins and the need for forgiveness, the baptism of Jesus was a baptism of, of the Holy Spirit, which is not just about repentance, but it was about regeneration. Regeneration. It meant meant that you, if you were baptized uh, by the Holy Spirit, that if you had been uh, partaken in the baptism of Jesus, then you just didn't only receive forgiveness, but you were reborn. You were regenerated. There is a new creation, a new work in you. You have a new nature in you. That's what he's saying. What Mark is saying or or what John the Baptist is saying here is that he's saying that one cannot repent himself into regeneration. Do you guys know that, church, that that you cannot repent yourself into regeneration? 
In, in other words, you cannot repent yourself into a new creation. There, there's, there's not a, a, an amount of repentance you can do that will actually lead you to be a new creation in Christ. That's only the work of Christ in you. And so regeneration means that there is something now added unto you. There is something new in you, creating something new in you. There is a new creation in you. That's what the baptism of Jesus was about. That's what made Jesus different from John the Baptist because John baptized you with water, symbolizing we need, we need to repent, we need forgiveness, but Jesus was the one that can actually forgive. And not only just forgive you uh, of the, the penalty of sin, but to forget, to, to bring the power to free you from the power of sin. Does that make sense? To regenerate you, to create in you a new being, a new nature in which you used to live that way, but because of the Spirit of God in you, the Holy Spirit in you, now you can live in the will of God. It makes me think of, when I think about John the Baptist and what he's doing here, he's putting the spotlight on Jesus I, I immediately think of um, just kind of encounters that we might have had with uh, celebrities or people that are great. You know what I mean? Like you just kind of, you know, you ever been starstruck and, and, and you just, um, just kind of like, you ever notice that when you meet someone really great, you just, we just go into like an automatic servant mode. Like we don't complain about like if, if you know, for, for example, if your favorite celebrity, your favorite athlete, whether it's like Michael Jordan or, what, you know, whatever it may be or, or who that may be, if they came to you and asked you like, if, can you give me a cup of water? You would gladly, right? You would joyfully, you would fill that cup uh, with, 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 uh, as if your life depended on it. But if some no-name person, someone maybe younger than you, right, someone maybe not as successful as you, right, came and said, can, I, can you give me a cup of water? Like you would complain, like, you know, who, you know, who do you think you are, right? You ever notice that when someone's greater than you, we just automatically, you know, how, how can I serve you? I think that's John the Baptist. He recognizes who Jesus is. Um, makes me think about a couple, you know, I, I'm from L.A., and I don't know if you guys think that people that live in L.A., we, we see celebrities like every day, but it doesn't happen. Um, but there's a couple times I, I've actually um, ran into some celebrities. One is a guy named Roy, Roy Hibbert. I don't know if you guys know. He used to play. Here's a picture of uh, me and Roy Hibbert. He's a basketball player. Uh, this is one he actually played for the, for the L.A. Lakers. Can you guys see it? All right. So that, that's all right. All right, a very awkward picture, I must say. Uh, and and he, he's probably about nine feet tall because I'm like 6'3", so he's probably, you know, um, I don't know why that's funny. But, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's really tall, and I think he played center for the Los Angeles Lakers. And I, when I saw him, I, I thought, man, I got I to gotta take a picture with him. And, um, and so that, that's, that's, that's one instance when I think, man, he is greater than I, right? He is taller than I. Um, but, but, you know, to be honest, I think there was one celebrity that I met in, in California, being in LA, that, that trumps all, uh, or Roy Hibbert, that, that trumps all celebrities that, that I've had maybe close encounters with. And it's a, it's a guy that you may not know of. May, maybe if you are uh, someone that grew up in the 80s, and, um, and if you're Asian, you might know this name. But it's a guy named Philip Ree. Anybody know Philip Ree? Right? Okay. Philip Ree. This is Philip Ree, right? Now, now I know that in recent times that, um, that Asians have popped up in the, in the, you know, the big theater and, and uh, you know, with what's that movie called? Crazy Rich Asians. And there's another movie out now with, what's her name? Aquafina. Is that a real name, by the way? There's, right? And so so it, it might seem like, it might seem like, man, Asians are, <laughs> we're coming up, right? Uh, but, but actually, 
If they are, I'm telling you, man, Philip Reed, this guy had a lot to do with it because he, he is like a pioneer. He's like a, he was a childhood hero of mine because when I was growing up in the 80s, uh, this is a, a, a movie series. They had like four or five different um, uh, parts to this, but it was a martial arts movie called Best of the Best, right? And uh, I'm trying to look around to see if uh, this is maybe a wrong crowd here, right? <laughs> But best of the best, uh, 1980s a martial arts movie, and on the cover, one of the main characters is a guy named Philip Reed. Right? He, he's that guy uh, on the left, and I think I have another picture uh, of him. All right, and, and I show that picture. That's a scene, but I just want to show that picture because I, I, I feel like growing up, I just remember thinking like, man, Asians get such a bad rep on TV. They make Asian, especially like Asian guys, they make us look so bad like we're always just doing math or whatever like you know and and I I just wanted to show you Tim if you can put that up again I just want to let you guys know for those of you that are non-Asian that's what Asians usually look like all right that's how when I when I get up out of bed that's how I look like I just letting you guys know that's how Asians look like and so that that's Philip Ree and uh is there another picture um is that it? Okay, I, this, this, those two, all right. But, but Philip Reed, okay, now I want to tell you guys how I met him. I was, guest, I was a youth pastor, this is about 10 years ago, I was a youth pastor speaking at a retreat uh, in California, and, uh, and, and we're, we're at Big Bear, California, and we're, we're spending about three days together. I was invited to a big youth group, and, uh, and, and so after I got done speaking on the first night, uh, I, I, I was about to go back to my cabin and just kind of talking to some of the staff members and some of the students and some guy comes up next to me and he's a big dude and he, you, can t- you can tell like you can see him from the peripheral, you know what I mean? Because he's best of the best. He comes next to me and, and uh, this guy just basically says, hey, uh, Pastor James, can I get you water? Can I get you some tea? Can I get you anything before you head back to your cabin? And I look and I'm like, this guy looks so familiar. You know what I mean? I'm like, man, where did, where did I see this guy? So I asked, like, you know, I'm like, hey, no, you know, I'm okay. And, and I asked, like, hey, is, uh, what's his name? And then they go, that's, that's Philip Ree. And I'm like, the, the Philip Ree? <laughs> I'm like, best of the best Philip Ree? He's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's best of the best Philip Ree. I mean, he, he, he's gotten a little older by this time. But I was standing next to the best of the best, all right? Part one, two, three, and four, all right? <laughs> Best of the best, Philip Ree. And I regret, I, 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 if I can go back, I would have said, I would have said, no, no, no. How can I get you water? Can I get you something to drink? Can I get you some tea? You know, I, I am not worthy of your water. I am not worthy uh, of your tea. And it turns out that his son uh, was actually part of the youth group. And, uh, and so, and, and he, and, you know, and there were, he was just there to help out. It was just just a normal person. But I remember being starstruck. I remember one of the first questions that came to my mind immediately when I recognized who he was was, how can I serve you, you know? And, and um, it makes me think about John the Baptist. And when, when Jesus comes on the scene, he immediately recognizes who he is. But it's more than that. He doesn't just recognize who Jesus is. He recognizes, John recognizes what he cannot do, but what Jesus can. What John the Baptist is saying here when he's talking about after me comes the one who is more powerful than I, more mightier than I. What he's talking, he's not, he's not talking about that he just has the ability to, uh, you know, gather more crowds. He's not talking about that at 
all. What, what John the Baptist is saying here is that he realizes that he can, John the Baptist can lead people to a river, but he cannot provide the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I baptize you with water, but there is one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? John the Baptist understands, man, who Jesus is. He's saying, he's saying to his crowd, he's saying, look, it's not about me. It's never been about me. He's saying, the one who is prophesied in Isaiah, he has come. And I baptize you in the Jordan River. And this, this, you will go in the water and come out. And, and water, listen, listen, water will eventually dry. But when Jesus baptized you with the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit will remain with you. And he's saying, I can't do that for you. He's saying, let me point you to Jesus. Because Jesus will baptize you not just with water, but the Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? It regenerates. Here's what, here's what repentance can do. Repentance can make us hate our sin. But you know what? Repentance can never make us love God. Repentance, I, I, I think that even if you're not a Christian, you can hate some of the things that you do. You can hate how you act. You can hate how your actions and your behavior causes your, your family to be hurt. But, but only the Holy Spirit can actually lead us from repentance to regeneration. Only the Holy Spirit can actually make us hate our sin while cause us to love God. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can actually make us love God. There's a quote I want to show you. It should be on the screen. It's by R.C. Sproul. He says in the book called Holiness of God, he says, loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, uh, an idol made by our own hands. Unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds his holy love in our hearts, unless he stoops in his grace to change our hearts, we will not love him. To love a holy God requires grace, grace strong enough to pierce our hardened hearts and awaken our morbid souls. Does, does that make sense here? What, what he's saying is that it is, it is this baptism that John the Baptist is pointing to. It is this Jesus he's pointing us to, that the one that can actually make us love God. Baptism. The word baptism was the Greek word, you know, to, 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 to fully dip, to immerse. It, it wasn't about a sprinkle. It was you would be fully dipped or fully immersed. I think about um, one of my favorite foods. It's called nachos with cheese. And, um, you know, I love, I, I'm, you know, from L.A., I love Mexican food. Like when, you, when it comes to like things I love, it's like, it's like God and family and then, and then maybe Mexican food, you know. And uh, like it's up there. And. And so one of, the, one of the things that I miss about L.A. is, well, I don't know if they have it here in Chicago, but it's this thing called carne asada nachos. You guys ever had that? But it's basically a nachos with covered with cheese, and then they put carne asada and, and, and some uh, onions and cilantro. 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's beautiful, right? And, and, um, and, but I think about it, and, and, and I don't know how you guys, like, everyone has different ways in which they eat their nachos. Some like their nachos with cheese on the side, you know, you know and, and, uh, and, and they, when they dip the, che- the, the nacho in the cheese, they just dip the corner, and so they get, like, you know, most nacho, most of the nacho and just a little bit of cheese. And, but one of my pet peeves is that when I get nachos and cheese, one of my pet peeves is when they're stingy with their cheese. Amen by myself, right? Like, I hate that. Like, I, when, when they don't give me, when their, their nacho to cheese ratio is off, it just ruins my day. And, uh, and I go back and I say, can I get more cheese? Because when I dip my nacho, right, this is the gospel now. When I dip my nacho into the cheese, you know how I dip it? I dip it all the way. I dip it all the way where when you take it, when you bring it in and take it out, you can't even recognize a nacho because it's been baptized. It's been, it's been immersed. It's been dipped. I, it's not just a touch. It's, it's, I, I, I put it all the way. It's, it's fully dipped so that when you take it out, you can't even recognize it. It's not the same that it used to be. Are you hearing me? And, and, and I think when, when we partake in baptism, which many of you have, Isn't it, is it not symbolic of this life that we have in God where we're not just dipping one toe in, in the life with Christ and then, and then the rest of our body in the world, but we are fully identifying with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in which when you go in and come out, it's supposed to symbolize you are no longer the same person you used to be. So whenever I eat nachos, I think about the gospel. No. <laughs> but I want you to think about that I want you to think about the life that God wants to give you. He wants to fully immerse you in a life with him. Amen? So that when someone sees you, they see Jesus. They see, man, I, you, you are, I'm like, like, you look the same, but you're not the same. Does that make sense? You look the same, but you're not the same. Why? Because your life has not been immersed the life and the death and the resurrection of the one they call Jesus. And Jesus himself went into the Jordan to identify to, with you and I. He came from heaven to earth so that, so that he can tell us he's a lot closer to us than we actually think. He's not far from you. He's quite close to you. He goes in the Jordan River himself, not because of his sin, but to take ours. And then after he comes up out of the water, it says that the spirit of God, like a dove, came upon him. And it was, it was to identify the, 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 the Trinity, the, the, the Trinitarian work. The father was there saying, this is my beloved son in whom I, I am well pleased. Jesus is there uh, getting the affirmation of the father before he did anything for the father. He says, he, he, he knows that he's already loved by the father. But he doesn't have to prove anything. The spirit of God comes. You see the father and the son and the spirit all working together. And this spirit was with Jesus. The whole, uh, the whole um, rest of the gospel he was with us every single day at every point of Jesus's life the Holy Spirit was active in his birth in his baptism in his temptations in his miracles in his ministry in his teaching in his resurrection one scholar said that he was perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit never resisted never quenched never grieved always full and this same spirit that was upon Christ and with Christ is the same spirit in you 
to those who say that Jesus is Christ. Those that say Jesus is Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, you were part of God's people and you knew you were part of God's people because, because the presence of God was with you. If the presence of God was with you, you, were, you know that you were God's people. It's the story of Exodus. But in the New Testament, you are God's people, not just if the Spirit is with you, but if the Spirit is in you. So the New Testament is a new Exodus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the one who actually takes us all the way home. Jesus is the one who can give us new creation. He doesn't just baptize you with water. He fills you with the Holy Spirit. He invites you to a life with him. He bears the good news. No matter what circumstances surround us, Christ is victorious. He triumphs over every storm you have. He holds us together. He forgives you and washes you of your sins. He fills you with his life. And he walks with you until the day you're finally home. As I close, I want to bring you to this, to this particular word here in the first part of the Gospel of Mark. There's a word that keeps coming up again and again. It's the word wilderness. You guys notice that? Wilderness. It's the context, it's the scene of where everything is taking place. Right? You'll see the word wilderness come up again and again. But wilderness here is not referring to a, a forest. It's not a place that's just um, you know, flourishing with all, all kinds of life, but it's actually more closely re- related to a desert. It's talking about a desert. So where is John the Baptist here in chapter 1? He's in the wilderness. Where is Jesus in chapter 1? In the wilderness. After baptism, where does the Spirit of God lead Jesus? Leads him into the wilderness. For 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness. And wilderness had great significance in Jewish history. It was a constant reminder of the exodus from Egypt uh, into the promised land. If you think about the Old Testament, if you think about exodus, you think about where did God um, uh, where did Moses meet God? He, he meets him in the wilderness. Where does Jacob meet God? He meets him in the wilderness. Where does Israel meet God? Doesn't meet him in Egypt. God meets Israel in the wilderness. Here, here's, here's what we need to know about the wilderness. Wilderness is, seems to be the place where God continues to show up. That's good news. God shows up in the wilderness. God shows up in the desert. God shows up, I would even say, in our wilderness, in our desert. This is not just old history. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He will show up in our wilderness. He will show up in our deserts, amen? A place where nothing grows, a place where there's lack of food. You think about the Israelites always complaining, lack of water. It was a place of thirst and hunger, but this is the place where God shows up, where there is lack of food, where there is lack of water, where there is thirst, where there is hunger, where there seems to be nothing growing, God shows up. In the dead places, God shows up to bring life and to show us that this is where life comes from. It doesn't come from your water. It doesn't come from your bread. It doesn't come from your wells. Life comes from God. It's in that place called the wilderness. Without God, you can't survive. That's the story of Exodus, that without God, you cannot survive. See, in the wilderness, in the desert, every well will go dry, and every bread will get old and moldy. 
But in the wilderness, it shows that Jesus is the living water that doesn't go dry. And Jesus shows us in the wilderness that he is the bread of life that doesn't grow old. And I think in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, it's to show us that our bread cannot save us. Our wells cannot sustain us. That even in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ is to show us that in the wilderness, in the desert places where there is no life and nothing growing, where there's thirst and hunger and we just turn to our wells and our bread, it's to show us Jesus, it's to bring us to Jesus, that Jesus would become our living water, Jesus would become our bread of life, that he alone can save us, that he alone can sustain us, that he alone is our good news. Amen. Jesus is our Savior. If you think about the wilderness, it's the place where complaints and cynicism is our default mode. It's the place where we just focus on what we lack and what we don't have. And, and maybe for some of us who've been with our church for some time, and you guys know that we've been in a challenging season, and you might even call it, call it a wilderness, a, a desert, where you feel like you know, the air has been sucked out, and you, where nothing seems to grow. Not that that's reality, but it's kind of the perception. It's kind of what we, we feel at times, but it's in this wilderness that Jesus comes. It's the place where we need, we need the good news. So for some of you guys who feel like you're in that desert, maybe as a church. I just want to present God to you. That God shows up in the desert. God shows up in the wilderness. And we have to be aware of are we just stuck in complaint mode? Are we just being cynical here? Or have we been reminded that God shows up in the wilderness? That God shows up in the desert. Perhaps this is a time where he's reminding us that he sustains us, that he saves us. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?